dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or savor a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I am sitting down with Sean Gagan, winemaker for Derby Wine Estates in downtown Paso Robles. The building, which is easily spotted from the 101 freeway, thanks to its height and salmon color, used to be the Paso Robles Almond Growers Building. Derby Wine Estates has three estate vineyards across the central coast. During the conversation, we discussed the history of the building, and I had the pleasure to do a comparative tasting between the 2011 and the 2021 1510 White. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, you know that many ask for Patreon. We do not plan on doing this, but we do ask you to support the podcast by leaving a review. It takes only a few seconds of your time, but means so much to the show. The next best way to support Exploring the Wine Glass is to tell your friends. If you enjoy the podcast, your wine-loving friends will too. Finally, don't forget to head to the website, exploringthewineglass.com, to read the blog and to sign up for the newsletter so you can keep up with all things happening. Slancha! Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, Spanish wine scholar, Somday service, champagne and Cotteron specialist, and a WSET level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. Stay in the know about all things wine by visiting my website, exploringthewineglass.com. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Allure of the Poor, sponsored by Dracina Wines. I am your host, Lori, and today I am sitting in a pretty special building in downtown Paso Robles at Derby Wine Estates, and I am talking with winemaker Sean Gagan. So welcome very much. How are you doing today? Fine, fine. Doing good. Yeah. Been a bit of a rough morning. I had goat escape. <laughs> got the goats back. Um, uh, things are... Things are back on schedule. Okay. That's not exactly something you normally hear, had goats escape. Goat wrangling. Early yeah. morning, Friday morning, goat wrangling. Yeah. Oh, now I just have a new vision in my head of you with like the Texan lasso <laughs> I, thing. I'm all, I'm all hat and no cattle. <laughs> All right. So my first question is, and I, I had said before we got on the fact that, you know, I have to do a little research or whatever. So, and I'm hoping it's the right Sean. County Wicklow? Nope. Wrong Sean? Too many Sean Gagans out there. Oh. Oh, damn. They're thick with them in Cincinnati. <laughs> really? All right. I was, I was like, oh my God, because I just had Wicklow Wines on. And I was like, well, now there is a, you know, There's two another Sean Gagan winemaker? There is. Uh, and it was... I uh, at least had that locked down. Well, I, I actually don't know if he's an actual winemaker, but he is in the wine industry. And all I did was find a picture. It was his father and he was in the wine industry. And there was a picture of, you know, three young boys. And one of them was Sean. So Not me. Um, no, no, no family history in, in the wine industry. Oh, uh, okay. And no Ireland... Uh, some Irish, but not 
Not me personally. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Damn, there's my goes my first question. All right, so let's talk about your origin story. How did we get here then? So you did not come from Ireland. <laughs> my origin story, yeah, it's actually a pretty um, traditional. So I grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, my family moved to Sonoma Valley in 1994. So I was always kind of exposed to the wine industry, Not obviously not really a wine drinker at the time. Uh, I ended up going to UC Davis, uh, okay. studying viruses and plants, and oh, working cool. at the Foundation Plant. It was then called the Foundation Plant Material Services. They changed the acronym to uh, Foundation Plant Services for for um, PR, really. <laughs> PR reasons. <laughs> um, uh, so that's a facility that brings in clean um, agricultural stock, uh, nut trees, strawberries, sweet potatoes, and grapes. Okay. Um, kind of a weird mix, but so if you want to bring in your favorite French clone of Mouved to pa plant in Paso, then you need to, uh, legally you would pass it through the foundation plant services. They would check that it's virus free and then you can either release it to a nursery or, uh, propagate it yourself for your own use. But that was kind of how I got exposed to the, the wine industry. Um, I didn't want to continue down the road of studying viruses and plants. It was just very... Um, detail-oriented, very focused. I felt like I was not really cut out for that. So I ended up um, kind of changing my, my studies at the last moment to get a degree in viticulture and enology. Yeah. Uh, then I moved uh, to the Santa Cruz Mountains and worked at Mount Eden Vineyard. It's a very old um, vineyard kind of on the edge of the Silicon Valley there in the Santa Cruz Mountains. I worked there for about a dozen years. I uh, met my wife and uh, she's a winemaker as well. She's working for uh, Randall Graham at Bonnie Doom. Oh. Uh, at the time, we got we were married, and uh, then we ended up relocating to Paso for a job that she got, and I came down here, and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. The Santa Cruz Mountains are a very different place mm -hmm. to make wine than, than Paso Robles is. So um, I worked for a, a vineyard management company for a couple of years and kind of really figured out what was going on in the area. It's such a large AVA. There's so many microclimates, soils, um, there's so much going on. And then the job at Derby came up and I tasted the wines. Uh, I'd already knew Steve Vieira, our vineyard manager, through my work in the, in the vineyard um, side of the industry. And saw the building, tasted the wines, learned about the vineyards, and I was kind of sold. So in 2019, I started on as the head winemaker here. That's very cool. So viruses and wine. So, I mean, when you walk through a vineyard, you can see, like, you're knowing, well, this is going to be red blotch or this is, you know... Hopefully not there, but, you know, or things like that. You're, you can see that kind of before it becomes, you know, for us, not so popular. We got to, like, wait to see the bad signs. Uh, viruses are very, very sneaky. You can have a, a, a cultivar, a clone, a selection that's infected with virus, and it will never show it. And then you take it to another site, and it immediately oh, has all the symptoms. And then a lot of the symptoms tend to be for, for leaf roll and red blotch. They can be... Um, not necessarily virus specific and throughout the year they can change a little bit, but sometimes I can see one and be like, I know that, that one, and I, that's, right. that's leaf roll too, or something like that, you know? So and those dang little viruses, kind of similar to humans, huh? <laughs> they're, they're very, they're very sneaky, the viruses, you know? And now that has nothing to do with the old Graciano goof here, because that's that not means, virus. <laughs> I think that was just a spelling error. Really? Well, all right. They just, you know, and so I I brought it up, but for those who don't know what the Graciano goof is, you want to? 
share uh, there a little was, bit. So there, there's probably someone who can tell this story better than I can. However, my understanding is that a well, well-known nursery who supplies a lot of the plant material to Paso Robles um, brought in some um, what they thought was a clone of Muved. Um, it turned out to be a clone of Graciano and everyone thought, Hey, this is the best Mouvet I may have ever tried. It grows so well in Paso because Mouvet is another, uh, variety that has some, um, issues with virus and some clonal issues. It's hard to find clean Mouvet that does really well. So everyone was like, this grows great. The, the good yields, the acid's great. And then someone eventually figured out, Oh no, this is not Mouvet. This is Graciano. Mm-hmm. And I think what happened, um, was that the, I haven't thought about it in a while, the French, name for Mouved is Monastrel. Yes. And the French name for Graciano might be Mostrel. Oh. So I feel like someone so just dropped an N, N. somewhere. Correct. Correct. <laughs> that could be. That was my understanding, but uh, I may have mixed up the the, the nomenclature there oh. a little bit, there, but there's uh, my understanding it was more of a, a nomenclature no. issue rather than a... Um, yeah, I don't think there was any deviousness trying to be in there. But what was interesting, I was in Spain where Monastrel, in Jumilla in Spain, it's queen, right? They yeah. call it their queen. And I was telling them this story. And they were all flabbergasted that we could be so confused by the grapes, by, by the way it went. And I'm like... Well, it really is just kind of a silver lining, yeah, right. you know, right? Well, give or us another, Give us another thousand years, <laughs> and we'll probably have a, a more intimate understanding of the Spanish right. <laughs> right. But they really were. They're like, how could you get those two? I'm like, well, they do look the same, you know, and I was telling them the same thing. Everybody was so happy. They just, like, this is the best grape ever, and we, we just were happy with it. So, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> So we are in a very historic building here in Paso. So you want to tell us about the building, the history of it? Sure. So this is the um, Paso Robles Almond Growers Cooperative Exchange Building. So it was built in 1922. So it's just uh, over 100 years old. Um, We had a little party last year to celebrate Centennial. Um, It was built to support the local almond industry that was uh, um, quite large in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So large, in fact, that there were 40,000 acres of almonds planted at the peak of the plantings here, which is, I believe, more than we have grapes planted now. So you can imagine how important that industry was to the community. I think the, the decline of the industry was very rapid. So they built this building in 1922, and then less than 20 years later, it would be, it, the industry had collapsed and the building was basically yeah. abandoned. Um, there are a lot of factors that went into that. I think the biggest one is that during the Great Depression, they used a lot of the excess labor, the state and the federal government, to create um, the big water projects that we know now, like the California Aqueduct that brought irrigated agriculture to the southern San Joaquin Valley. So most of the industry here was dry farmed almonds, with big spacing in the hills uh, around Paso. Uh, when irrigated agriculture happened, basically, I think the, the yields and and and, and in Paso were so low and the price of almonds uh, dropped so quickly that the industry basically became insolvent because, oh, because wow. yields were so high and, you know, the central irrigated Central Valley, we, we the industry here just couldn't compete. So the building was basically um, turned into uh, uh, grain storage. So there's uh, dry farm barley in the area and some wheat was, was a big deal after the al- collapse of the almond industry. Um, and then that industry also kind of went the same way as the almond industry. So eventually the building went through a couple iterations just as a warehouse and was finally just abandoned. 
So it was really kind of a blight on the community. And the Derbys bought the building in, in the, um, I want to say around 2010, 2011. I'm not quite sure. It was before my time. And they worked with the Historical Society in the city to really um, just make it a new building, like, but also to, to make it look almost exactly as it was before, but mod- modified a little bit to be a wine production facility. So they completed production in, uh, uh, sorry, they completed the renovations in, in, in 2014 and then opened as our winery and tasting room here in downtown Paso. And it's, uh, I think there's a lot of synergy in the fact that the almond industry was so huge for the community at the time. Now that the, the grape, uh, wine grape and, and wine production and the hospitality that goes along with it is such a big deal for the community now. I think that the fact that it's, we're using it for wine production, I think there's some nice um, synergy there. And it just was a great thing, I think, that the Derbys did for the community as well to kind of restore this. It's a beautiful building, and it was, again, just kind of a blight on the downtown landscape. Do you have pictures in here of what it looked like before it was renovated? Yes. Yeah. I mean, not other... Well, not in physically not, not, in this not, room, yeah, but I Yeah, I have mean... one on my screensaver, okay. so like, it always kind of reminds me, you know, this is, you know... Yeah, I mean, I it's when I heard, you know, that date of when Derby's been here, so to me... This has always been here, but I'm not originally from here, right? Yeah. So we moved here. Our first vintage was 2013. So it just seems like Derby has always been uh, in this building, in this building, and part of Paso Robles, you know. And I mean, honestly, it's a pretty easy building to spot, right? <laughs> everyone, everyone says, "Oh, we've seen your building a thousand times," and today right. we decided to come in. And- right, and now the color is. Was that the original color? Did they keep that or no? I, I believe the peach is is, is pretty pretty um, to what it was. It was hard to tell because the old pictures it had. I don't think it had been were painted black and in white. 50, right? no, it had been painted <laughs> in fifty. They either were black and white or it hadn't been painted in fifty years by the time um, the color photography came around. Right. Yeah. So I mean, it is. It's something that you can see from the freeway, you know, and it's even from downtown. And a little birdie yesterday told me that it's actually the highest. Building the tallest building, the tallest in, building there, I don't know that it was. There may be some contenders now, but yeah. I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure if you go to the top of the tower, which was the silo, so the the mm-hmm. almond growers would um, bring their products. Uh, imagine up 101 through the front of what we now consider the front of the building, which was probably the back at the time. Okay. It would, the almonds would go in the silo. There was a series of um, compartments within the silo, and then they would ship out. Uh, the, tr- the railroad tracks are on the uh, other side of the building. And so then they would ship to the Blue Diamond Cooperative in Sacramento, which is the larger kind of statewide cooperative. It's a, fa- I mean, if you think about the almond history, it's a fantastic location, right? You think the train is right there. So they're literally just taking the product out of the building and loading it onto a train that is there to just go right away. Yeah, it was built to be a logistics hub. And it's really nice as a winery with big trucks coming through. They had, it was built to have that happen where uh, Mount Eden, the, the Mount Eden Vineyards in the Santa Cruz Mountains where I worked before was up a two-mile winding yeah. dirt road off a two-mile <laughs> lonely county road. So, you know, you get some really upset truck drivers when they right. finally got to the top and it just about... Jack knife a couple right, times on right. some of the on some of the curves, so it's it's a dream now for me. Right, absolutely. And so, can you go up? Do you still able to go up into the silo? Yeah. So the the silo itself, we walk through it, and you're on your way in here into our sensory room. That was kind of the base of the silo. And the, okay. It's not a whole lot of usable space unless you're using it as a a, a, a 
storage facility. Initially, Ray Derby had thought he could use some of the compartments as concrete tanks for oh. wine production, but they had to scrap that because they just they needed to do some retrofitting to make the, ta- the, the, the silo tower safe again. But they did that, and now there's an elevator that goes to the top, and there's a small penthouse up there called the Almond Room, and we do an elevated experience where you can taste um, library wines that we pick out, and the, the, the folks at Vivant um, Cheese oh, right. will pair uh, cheeses to the wines that we choose, so that's, that's a fun option. It must be a view up there. Yeah, it's really nice. And one of the funny things is we do have pictures of the construction happening there, and you can see all the old oak trees. And 100 years ago, they look exactly the same as they did today. So you just wonder how old all these heritage oaks that we have are. They haven't, you know, they haven't grown much in 100 years, so they must have already been there for <laughs> a couple hundred years. So now you did mention Ray, and so Derby Wine Estates is actually owned by Ray and Pam Derby. So how did they get into wine? What made them decide this is what we want to do? Ray was in the manufacturing business in Southern California. He eventually sold his business to a competitor and moved to Cambria. Mm -hmm. And I believe he was kind of involved in a little bit of farming there. I believe he initially started maybe with avocados. Uh, You'd have to ask Ray about his particular origin story. Uh, He he eventually um, uh, got involved in the wine industry by purchasing uh, Laura's Vineyard, which is uh, one of our three estate vineyards. So we have all state fruit uh, that we produce here, but we are a relatively large grower. So we have Laura's Vineyard, which is in the Estrella district. We have uh, the Derby Vineyard, which is originally the Rosette Vineyard, which is in the Templeton Gap district. Mm -hmm. And then we have the Derby Shire Vineyard, which is in the San Luis Obispo Coast AVA, so the new AVA. So we have a kind of a range of uh, our vineyard portfolio has quite a range of of microclimates and different growing conditions. But I believe they purchased Derby Shire initially and kind of started thinking about planting that to grapes. They were told at the time that it's too cold, it's too close to the ocean, it's only about half a mile from the ocean. So it's probably the closest commercial vineyard that I know of to the Pacific and on the West Coast. But I'm sure someone can find one that's closer, but pretty close. Eventually they... uh, got involved either in a partnership or purchased Laura's Vineyard, which is part of, it was named after Laura Eberly. So it was part of the original oh. Eberly, Eberly Ranch. It's off Highway 46 East. And they, all kind of about the same time, the late 90s, the early 2000s, they kind of acquired their vineyards. And then they worked as basically a grower um, with uh, winery partners in the area. And we still, we, we, we own and farm more than 400 acres. So wow. we're a relatively large independent grower. And I only produce 5 to 10% of our overall production. So we're still, um, the majority of our production still, we're still Selling as a grower right. rather than a producer of those grapes. So even though you are you have that that much grapes, which is a lot of acreage for a single entity, yeah. uh, you're really still a boutique winery. Correct. We, we right. process about 70 tons. So I do... Um, all of the hands-on production. I'm our only full-time production employee, and about 70 tons is about as much as I can do. <laughs> I have a couple guys that help me on processing days. That's mm. about it. And what's that like? That That's a lot. I'm sorry. That's a lot for one person. So. Well, I don't play well with others, so it's probably uh, for the best. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, I just, I'm at a point in my career where uh, I still have the ability to do a lot of the hands-on seller work, and I find that I kind of get to understand the wines much better than if I'm just doing a blending trial or tasting out of tank, just working the pump over scene, doing every step of the process by hand, kind of having your face in the tank. I think it 
gives me a more intimate relationship with the wines and then helps me understand the changes that I want to make or the way to make those wines the best they can be once I've got them. Right. It's difficult for the grapes to talk to you if somebody else is doing the work, right? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And uh, so Derbyshire was their first one. And when I heard that, all I could think about was Lord of the Rings. Yeah, right. You know, I I just thought of that. Um, So really, they ultimately, back then, really just wanted to be growers. Or did they say, we're going to start with growing, but we do want to have our own winery? Or was the winery kind of... Hey, we're making this spectacular fruit, and other people are taking it. <laughs> it was it was the latter. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, initially, they didn't really have any desire to really uh, make wine. Uh, this might be something you might have to edit yeah. out, but eventually, uh, they were selling grapes, and to someone down in Santa Inez, they bought a bunch of petite Syrah from Laura's Vineyard, and they made the wine, and they never paid their bills. So they ha- it was all very, uh, you know. Amenable, but they the derbies had to go and repossess the wine. (laughs) Oh my god, oh, that would have been kind of fun to video and see. (laughs) Um, you know, again, it wasn't, it was all amenable, but they had to go take the wine. Then, well, we have these whatever thousands of gallons of petite Syrah, and then they ended up, I believe, selling it in bulk or bottling a little bit of it, uh, and and eventually decided that, um, kind of what you said, the latter part of what you said, oh. Mm This is maybe this is something we can do. So they ended up kind of doing a little bit of crush and crush again across 400 acres. You end up having a rounding error can end up being thousands of gallons or many tons of right. uh, grapes or thousands of gallons of wine. So they said, well, we don't want to just if we can't sell it or we we fulfill our contracts and there's extra grapes and then we can't find a buyer. We want to have the ability to then you know get all the value and not have any waste. So they started doing some custom crush production uh, for a number of years and, and then eventually. During that time, the, the the portfolio of wines that we sell now kind of start to take shape. And then by the time we moved into this building, the the the, the brand had kind of set itself. You know, right? Awesome. So when they decided to purchase this building, they had already had their vineyards. Yeah, all correct? three vineyards were in production. Correct. So what did they have? A love of the history. They just thought that this was a great building. Like to me. I would walk into this building after it was abandoned and go, man, this is really cool, but oh my God, what an undertaking. I'm not really sure I want to do this. So it must have been a massive undertaking to restore this and not only restore it, but they kept it to historical accuracy, right? To standards, right? So I don't know if you can answer that because you weren't here, but it must have been a massive undertaking for them to do this. And now a word from our sponsor. The 27 individual tasting rooms that make up the downtown wine district are situated in the heart of Paso Robles city center, where you are only steps away from all Paso Robles has to offer in the way of dining, shopping, and entertainment. Visit downtown Paso Robles to find yourself among the greatest concentration of wineries in the area. In downtown, consumers can experience Paso Robles' rich and diverse wine country lifestyle sample quality wines from each of the region's 11 distinct sub-appellations and have the opportunity to meet vintners that are as passionate about downtown as they are about their wine. Oh yeah, they talk they, they, they talk about it. It is one of those things where it seemed it's a beautiful building and again the derbies I think have a, a strong sense of giving back to the community so I think again it was part of that was 
maybe philanthropic in nature is that they, they, they felt this is something we, we need a winery space. This is uh, a building that has a lot of um, potential, uh, both as a, a production facility and as a uh, something that can make the community a little stronger. So I think that was part of it. And there, I think once they got into it, it they 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 uh, did have some. Oops! oops this is moments. a lot. Why, why why did we do this moments? But uh, in the end, I think it worked out for the best because they just did such a beautiful job. It's, it's it's very stunning inside. It absolutely is. When you come into the the entry of if you were a visitor. That entry room, the tasting room is beautiful. And now you have the, the deck that's outside. So And you've had that pre-COVID. Um, like it just, it's a beautiful outside setting, a beautiful inside setting. Lots of windows out there so you can see everything that's going on. Yeah, so the tasting room was the only, that was an addition. So they, they allowed okay. us to do that. So the tasting room is brand new. And then the rest of the building is, is, is the production area and our offices is, is original. If somebody comes to visit, do they have an option to do a tour? Usually we do. If we're really like, if they if they really want to do a tour, they can um, make an appointment to do so. Usually we can, but if it's really slammed in here, that are we don't have the tasting room staff has enough uh, problems just Problem. keeping wine in everyone's glass, right? Think, right, right, absolutely. And now I read that when they started the building when they did all this they joined the amphora wine trail now i've been in paso for 13 years and i've never heard of the amphora wine trail so what what is that is it still around uh there was a woman um i have to double check her last name is uh libby who is part of the san luis obispo county historical, historical society i don't i don't know the name of her organization but I should. Uh, she did a documentary on the amphora use. There's a man um, down the road from us at iTech who I think started importing them uh, or in maybe about the time we opened this building, I think. So, so seven to 10 years ago. And a lot of it kind of caught on in the area. It's kind of a um, traditional way of producing wine in some areas of Europe. Um, it's uh, a neutral vessel. It does have some flavor. It's kind of a terracotta, basically. And you can, all, you can see it from uh, where you're sitting there. Uh, oh yes, and they're very beautiful. Uh, uh, and because he was importing them from Italy, uh, and is located here in our area, it, it kind of caught on with a lot of the winemakers. So uh, uh, Libby did a documentary just kind of talking about both how we use them, our experience, and I believe she also went to Georgia, the country, to uh, talk to some of the winemakers there, where it was a part of the traditional winemaking technique techniques there. And had you ever worked with Amphora prior not. to here? I had not. Uh, and I do enjoy working with it. We had to do, ours is an older version. It was one of the first they, they kind of imported. So we, I had to do a little bit of uh, renovating on it okay. to get it up to par. But now I, I do enjoy using it. It's just another tool that's really fun. And what what does the Amphora do to the wine? Do you use it for just whites? Is it white and red? What What do you like about it? What does it improve? What do you see as it imparting into? It is a can be used for both white and red wines. Um, I initially just used it for white, and then converted it to red this year. Okay. Um, just to try something new, you can't really go back from red to white, unfortunately. Once <laughs> the the aspect, yes, the aspect of the red. <laughs> um, but uh, if you had multiple, you could be using them for white and, and red wines. Um, it is. Uh, 
kind of similar to concrete where it has kind of uh, a neutral flavor to it maybe a little bit of earthiness stoniness kind of that just clay mineral aspect but i haven't noticed that um, overtly in any wine that i've stored in there but it, it, it because it's not stainless steel it does allow um it breathes basically it allows the wine to breathe that's being um aged in, in, in it um, as a vessel so the, that exchange of oxygen will mellow the wine and kind of change the flavor of the wine. The hard part is understanding, most winemakers understand how much, how long elevage should be for a particular wine given acidity, uh, tan structure and those things. And for American and French oak barrels, uh, similar for stainless, they understand the oxygen exchange that happens with those vessels. But with the, the terracotta clay, at least for me, it was kind of an unknown. Oh, okay. Is it is it somewhere between? Is it more oxidative than a barrel is it less so is it almost as tight as say you know close to stainless or concrete so there's a little bit of trying to understand how to uh, match the wine to the elevage that was uh, going to happen in, in the amphora and have you come to love it uh, hate it in between <laughs> some I vintages are better I, than I, others <laughs> I, I, I enjoy it um it's hard to work with in the cellar because there's no valves there's no drain door there's oh, no so right. it's a lot of like huffing and puffing and lifting and dumping and and, and cleaning it you know those things are, are are more difficult just because they're not as commonly used in the wine industry mm -hmm. that a lot of the um tools that we use to clean barrels and, and tanks don't really work for that purpose with the amphora, but uh, I, I, I still enjoy it just because it, it, it creates more complexity. And it's also a great marketing tool because people are really, it's so beautiful. People are really interested when they see it, they have questions about okay. it. So there's, there's that as well. It's not all show, but it is uh, very beautiful. Very beautiful to look yeah. at. Yes, yes. And so you poured for me two wines. And so tell us about 1510 point. What, what is it? What's in there? It's, it's a blend because you're not calling it by a specific varietal. So what, what's in it and why 1510? Yeah, so that 1510 is the fanciful name um, for uh, a, a white and a red blend that we do uh, from the Derby Vineyard, which is our vineyard in the Templeton Gap. It's actually the border between Templeton Gap and Willow Creek. So I think we get... Oh. Both the the, um, the kind of the best qualities of both AVAs. We have really complex soil, a calcareous shale at the upper end of the vineyard, but we also get the really cooling effect of the, the winds that yeah. come through the Templeton Gap. So the 1510 blends are named after the location of the vineyard, which is 1510 Live Oak Road. Oh, okay. So uh, they are not varietal wines, so we did have to come up with a name rather than calling them white and red blends. <laughs> um, we we came up. Uh, the name they came up with was 1510. Um, they're both Rhone style blends. Um, so with the white wine, uh, we were pouring the 2011 and the 2021. So I produced the 21 and Tiffany Vieira, Steve Vieira's wife, was the original winemaker for the Derbies and she produced the 2011. Uh, she had Marsan Rousson, Grenache Blanc, Viognier and Picpoul Blanc. Uh, and I have Grenache Blanc, Viognier, and Picpoul Blanc. So I started making the Marsan and the Rousson kind of separately. I did the Rousson in 2019 in the Amphora. That was the first wine that I aged in the Amphora. Um, but I just love these wines. They um, they don't get as much attention as the red wines, I think, out of Paso, the Grenache and the Syrah. And that's kind of a shame because I think they are probably better on, you know, 
when you think of the best wines in the world, I think the white wines have so much potential here and they just don't get talked about. You know, I talk about that all the time. Pe- people come to Paso and they're like, no, I just want the reds. Give me and the like, big reds. Yeah. And I'm like, but we have whites here. You know, I mean, there's definitely we're much higher in red than white as a as a region. Right. I mean, in production wise and definitely probably better known for the reds than the whites. But as you're saying, that's a shame because there's some beautiful whites here. And I, I, I'm always like, taste it. You can always dump it. We, don't, You know, people don't get insulted. Winemakers don't really get insulted if you spit the wine, you know, exactly. like whatever. Give it a try. And, people, you know, people are always shocked almost when I tell them there's white here in Paso. And so these wine, I mean, first of all, for a 10-year, that's incredible. Like This is this... Uh, uh- these 1510 whites were one of the reasons I took the job because I tasted the 2013 or 2014 when I came in in 2019. And it was still so fresh and so alive. So this is kind of a fun exercise that I like to do with people. So the, the 2011 is, is still very light in color. It's not ox- it's, it's, it's darker than the 2021, right. but not by much. Like if you told me this was a 2020 uh, uh, current release, I would not be like surprised without having just looking at it visually right um, if you didn't have if i didn't have the 2021 right next to it i right. would not find this visually i would not think it was taken no, so not at all and it, it but when you smell the nose it's so expressive it's very rich it's very honeyed um compared to the 2021 is much fruitier much more mineral and yeah. stony but the 2021 has really evolved i'm sorry the 2011 has really evolved into uh very rich, very complex wine. And I think that the low pH, the, the higher phenolic compound of some of the, the, the Rome whites, it really allows for, for beautiful aging. So Wow. Oh, yeah, that definitely... Oh, I'm salivating. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, um, that definitely, if that was... This would be a good Somme test wine if you wanted to make the Somme fail. Yeah, right. Because I don't think they ever would guess... Ten-year-old Paso Robles. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> nailed it. Marcel Rousseau, yeah, yeah, right. exactly. Um, and to be one hundred percent honest, I am not the biggest fan of Marsan. Yeah. Right. Um, but this, it's to me because it's older, it's tamed that Marsan. One of the things that I don't like about Marsan is it is so much in your face and and so big. Yeah. I guess on the palate, you know, can be kind of oily or kind yeah, of like yeah. broad in the palate, right? You know? Right, kind of um, like some Viognier's have that. I was trying to explain that to some people, like don't turn away all Viognier because they're like, oh, I don't like what it does on my tongue, you know. And I'm like, well, that's the body, that's that oily, the glycerol-y type feeling on your tongue. Not all Viognier's are that way, but to me, Marsan has a tendency to have that. And so this, I mean, I, I don't know if it had it back in 2011, and yeah. it's kind of tamed down. But this is... Well, it's only 31% Marsan, 26% okay. Roussan, 22% Grenache Blanc, 11% Viognier, and 10% Picpoul Blanc. And the Grenache okay. Blanc and the Picpoul Blanc, I think, really do a lot for the mouthfeel yeah. and, and, and giving some linear acidity to it and allowing... Uh, the good parts, the richness, the honey of mm-hmm. the Marsan and the Roussan and the Viognier to really kind of shine shine through. Yeah, absolutely. The, and I definitely get that honey. Um, this is good. I, and I hate when I say this and I tell people all the time, just say what you taste, just say what you do because there's nothing wrong with it. Um, in, it actually reminds me of like 
a honey roasted cashew or a honey sure. roasted, you know, like there's a bit of that in there that is just delicious and seriously making me salivate, which to have an, that old of a wine at 930 did, in the morning, at 930 in the morning right? Um, so good. So good. Um, and now, oh, and I do love pink pole. Uh, so now tell us about, you said this is the 13? Uh, 2021. 2021, so sorry. 10, 10 11 years. and 21. Yeah, so, so we got 10 years apart. So uh, I, in 2019, my first year, I did make the same, uh, use the same grape varieties to make the blend. Uh, and then I just kind of decided I wanted to do the Marsan and the Roussan by themselves. They're traditionally grown kind of in the northern Rhone. And I would use this blend as well as the 1510 red. I kind of shift them to be more representative, maybe a blend that you'd find in the southern Rhone. Um, I think it was just an idea that that made sense to me at the time to kind of um, make the story about the wine a little right. easier to tell. And now your Mar- Marsan, Roussan, are they together? Or are you making a single varietal Marsan and single varietal I made a single varietal Marsan in 2019. Oh, sorry, Roussan in 2019, and then in 22 I did a Marsan. Oh, okay. okay. This is definitely... A whole different, obviously, ten, you know, ten years later, a whole different, um, more, more of that citrus, more of that honeydewish. Like, yeah, a little yeah. bit of ripe melon. I yeah. get a lot of kind of stoniness, yeah. or minerality to this wine, the, and you kind of yeah. hope that the twenty twenty one ages as well as the twenty eleven, and it starts to pick up some of those richer notes. Okay. We'll see though, because without the Marsan and the Roussan, it could be a totally different beast. But I guess that's kind of the problem uh-huh. with winemaking is you only get one shot at one, it. <laughs> one life and i'll know 10 years from now if i made the correct decision and who knows if right. well, you know and now a word from our sponsor exploring the wine glass is brought to you by dracina wines dracina wines is an artisan winery located in paso robles california they have been producing wine since 2013 their first vintage began with one wine, their classic Cabernet Franc, which received a 91 in wine enthusiast. Since then, they have increased production as well as expanded their portfolio, have received many accolades, including multiple double gold medals and consistent 90-plus ratings. Visit their website, www.dracinawines.com, or use the link in the show notes to schedule a private tasting and to see their entire portfolio. Purchase your award-winning wine and let Dracina Wines help turn your moments into great memories. Yeah, definitely the stone fruits, um, like a white peach, mm. right? White peach and and the melon there. Um, it's very. I love doing side by sides of you know, and it's interesting now that you smell the younger one, you can kind of see where this was. Right? You can kind of pick up the age. You kind of pick up the age on when you start with just the. 2011 you don't really pick up the 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 kind of the age on the wine until you taste it next to the 2021 which is maybe doing a disservice to the 2011 but i i served uh my distributor from georgia came uh, a couple years ago last year and we did a dinner at brasserie laurent oh okay i wanted to say but there's been a name change there so and we had a magnum of the 2011 and it was just fantastic you imagine it was like the same profile this wine but uh, you know much tighter much, much brighter as well so that was again this is a wine that i love to show to people and, and tiffany did such a good job on that wine so yeah they the 
This is beautiful also. And it, it is interesting how you can now see where this was years ago. Like, very cool. See, you've got to love science. Right. Right? Absolutely. Now, what do you think, not coming from pa- or originating from Paso, which I didn't originate from Paso either, what draw you or what drew you to Paso once you were here? What did you like about Paso? Because I think Paso is very different than other wine regions. Now, never really. I mean, I've been to Santa Cruz Mountains quite a few times, but more for other things than the wine. Than the wine. What do you like about Paso? Um, my wife told me we were moving here. So. <laughs> <laughs> what drew me here was my wife not wanting to get in trouble. There you go. Yes, um, dear. <laughs> Exactly. Um, but uh, I, to be honest, I was a little worried. I hadn't been to Paso for maybe 10 years. And so it, it was probably 2006, 2007, the last time I was here. And so much has happened, I think, with the wine industry really taking off and a lot of this, the, the hospitality that comes around wine and the wine industry, the, the, the restaurants, the bars, the hotels, mm-hmm. the spas, all these nice things. Uh, that really kind of blossomed, I think. So when we came, when I came down to visit, my wife came down a couple months before uh, I did because I had to finish our, uh, our harvest work at, at, in the Santa Cruz Mountains. So I, uh, I immediately was kind of enamored with the area, especially kind of the little towns like Santa Margarita and oh. Preston, these little gems, Templeton, that most people don't know about that are kind of Paso adjacent and make kind of, are part of kind of the larger Paso wine community are just um, really fun to go to. Uh, and, and just coming from the Bay Area, just... Not having the traffic, not, you know, I was living right on the edge of Silicon Valley and there's the traffic and the, the cost of living and the, the housing and all that. Being able to, you know, come down here and settle into the, the kind of slower lifestyle style on the central coast was, was, was something that I, I appreciated once I got down here. The slow lifestyle. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and we are, you are considered a downtown winery. Yes, we are. Okay. Yes, we are. So uh, what what do you think is, I mean, I know you didn't have the decision to choose downtown, but you're here. What what do you think is special about the wineries downtown and the restaurant, like just downtown as its own entity? What do you like about it? What do you think is special about it? Oh, it just has that energy. You know, it, it's the center of the community. Um, it's where people, it's the first place people go. It'd be our beautiful kind of mission style. We don't have a mission, obviously, but we still have that kind of old California style square like Sonoma Valley where I grew up. That was just kind of the way the towns were established. And it, and that really gives like a focal point to the community where that's, you know, you can just not know where you're going and not, you know, just end up there. And, you know, this is where, this is the place to be. Everything kind of radiates out from there. So having because the wine industry is so important to the area, but it, it's, it's spread out. It's one of, it was the largest, it still is the, the umbrella Paso AVA, I think is the largest AVA in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, things change so fast. Like, don't fact check me on that. Right. You um, go to sleep and it's a yeah, new thing yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> um, it is nice to kind of have that, that wine production here in the downtown. It, it, it kind of, is kind of a starting place, I think, for a lot of the people. They see the winery, they see the grapes kind of coming, you know, on the trucks through downtown, and, and I think that's a good thing. Because we're more like the few people who are actually making wine. That's what I was going to say. Now, that's actually a unique thing to Derby because the majority of the wineries that are downtown are tasting rooms. They're yeah. producing their wine someplace else, but Derby is actually producing the wine here in downtown. 
So you know, it's kind of fun. Like you know, you you kind of in the afternoon or in the morning, you can smell the the beer brewing at the uh, um, Silva Brewing over there. You can smell kind of the oak fires from the, the various restaurants, the Hatch, and right. you know, hopefully, you can see a, a derby truck delivering grapes, and it just brings a lot of energy, I think, to the downtown area. Yeah, that and, production aspect. And so, do you spend? When you're not working, do you spend time in downtown? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I live only maybe five minutes from here. So oh, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, uh, we're always down here at the different restaurants and bars and, you know, just kind of hanging out. It's just a nice place to be. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's the, Paso is beautiful for wine, it, you know, fantastic for wine, fantastic for so many things. But one location, I think downtown has any place else in Paso Beat because you park your car and you just walk and you have amazing restaurants. And I mean, you can shop, you know, we have clothing stores and, and fabric stores and everything else you can think of. Everything is right there. Exactly. So it's, it's nice. Plus the park. Yeah. The whole, the whole downtown community is tailored for people to enjoy themselves and have a good time, you know? Right. Absolutely. And so, if we come back to the the building itself, the you know we we have another kind of well known winery in Paso, not in downtown. That the joke is first castle on the right, right? Um, so I, I kind of see Derby as that same type type of landmark thing as a his, such a historical aspect of Paso. You know, you're like, oh, it's that peach color building as you go past the freeway or whatever. Um, do, and you kind of mentioned it earlier that people are like, oh, I see it all the time, but this is my first time in. Do you do you think that like does Derby see themselves as being a landmark for for Paso? Well, the building was here first, and and we do run into issues with that because people are like I didn't know that was a winery. I didn't oh. know you could, or I didn't know you could do wine tasting there because I've drove by it a thousand times. It was here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Forever. You might have drove by it in 1986. They, they <laughs> definitely weren't doing any wine tasting there. So there is a little, there are some issues with that. It's like, okay, it's relatively new as a wine tasting room and production facility. So getting people to understand, hey, yeah, come on down. Like, we're open seven days a week. Lovely <laughs> wines. Great vineyards. And um, so you mentioned the, the three main vineyards, but what... Like the one in temp, you're obviously, or I shouldn't say obviously, but you probably are growing different um, varietals in e or varieties, I should say, in each of those different vineyards. So, what what varieties do you grow overall, or is that like too massive to talk about? We, I believe, <laughs> we grow twenty seven different varieties. Wow! And what do we say? There's there's thirty two. Varieties that grow from Albarino to Zinfandel, as Ray likes to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, definitely on our in the San Luis Obispo coast, we grow uh, grapes that were traditionally grown in more cooler climates in Europe. So we have Pinot Gris, Chardonnay, oh. Pinot Noir, and a small amount of um, Syrah and Pinot Meunier. So we do sell. Is there a sparkling at Derby? Yes, we Ooh. we made a. The, the vineyard was so close to the ocean that initially they were worried that they weren't even going to be able to make table, still table wine. So the first production year, I believe, was 2007. Um, they made all sparkling. Nice. Smart. And they get, did again in 2014. And we just sold out of, we have maybe 20 cases of the 
an extended Tourage 2014 that we haven't labeled yet. But that'll be the end. We, we'll have to make some new sparkling. So I'm looking to work with some of um, the producers, sparkling producers that we sell to at Derbyshire are going to maybe help me. Um, Conquer bring, that process. Bring, bring the sparkling program back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we have those varieties at the coast. We have uh, initially the, the Derby vineyard was just Rhone varieties. We've since planted Spanish varieties. Our vineyard manager is really kind of excited about uh, growing Spanish varieties. So we do a couple Spanish style blends. We have Tempranillo, Graciano. We planted Graciano as Graciano <laughs> and we planted Moved as, as Graciano. Graciano. <laughs> so we have a couple different clones of Graciano. Uh, Albarino, um, Carignan and Grenache are, are kind of sort of just those Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. They could be the Spanish. Well, we call them Rhone varieties. Maybe the Spanish would call them Spanish right. varieties, but they go into some of our I Spanish ha- I blends. have a big issue with that. Yeah, like, right. why is it called? It's not It's not French. These are Spanish wines. Exactly. These are Spanish grapes. Um, and, and Steve, our vineyard manager, would agree with you, I think. Uh, do you then, think that that has, and I don't know if you can answer this or not, do you think that has to do with him thinking climate change because the Spanish varieties are so ready for climate change. Honestly, I think he just loves Spanish wine. Okay. But also they do so well here that there's more than one reason I think that he wanted to plant them. We'd have to ask him. Um, And then in our Laura's vineyard at this point is basically just Petit Syrah and Cabernet. So in a a warmer climate, it's it's big reds. And they, they do very well there. One of the issues I think with Derby as a brand is that as a grower, it's great to have 20, 27 different varieties to offer to your winery partners. As a winery, it can be kind of daunting because it's like, well, we make Spanish wines, we make Bordeaux wines, we make cool climate wines, uh, grown wines, but there are, there's so many wineries in the AVA now, and there's someone who just makes Spanish wines, right. and there's someone who just makes grown wines. There, you know, so. It can be a little bit of a consumer choice overload. It's like, well, what do you do best? Well, we do everything really right. well. And I think as a brand, that's been kind of challenging for us and something that I've been working on since I took over the wine program to maybe try and bring a little more focus. Because at one point, we were almost making all 27 of the different varieties. And it was becoming a little out of control, I would say. Even though they're all good. good. Right. If you go to a restaurant and there's... 200 items on the menu you just don't know no, what to, what to do. Right. what's good right well, and someone says that they're all good right. and you say well you have to every, specialize what is, in something. what does everyone else order right right okay, so that's something we're working on as a brand and that's just kind of the growing pains of transitioning from having 400 right. acres and 27 right. rise and how to make you know succinctly turn that into a, a, a cohesive brand right absolutely what do you when somebody wants to come to derby Right. How do they how do they come? Are you by appointment? Are you walk-ins? Both? Uh, both. Uh, the elevated experience is by appointment only. Uh, what we do except we're open seven days a week and we walk-ins are always welcome. We also take reservations, especially if you're a larger group. But if you show up, we you, we will pour you some wine. We've got a lot of space. We have a nice <laughs> patio. It's been kind of June gloom here for, for a while. but um, Yeah, right? What odd weather we've had. The patio is really nice when, you know, in the shade and when the weather warms up. So we are, we are open for business. But and if you want to do, like, something special, special. 
a elevated experience or uh, a larger group it's reservation only. And I was joking with Ted because he's on railroad. So I was joking with Ted is like, well, you know, they can either walk here, they can drive here, or they can just jump off of the train. Yeah, right. So, I mean, they can basically do the same thing here. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, so what is it, 220 and 420? If you're out on the patio, you get a little added breeze. Yeah, right. <laughs> the, the, the coach starlight and the daylight and starlight. Yeah, absolutely. And now, what is... What is your favorite thing about being in the wine world? Oh, that's a tough one. For me, it's always the, the kind of elusive idea of terroir and like okay. these, 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 it's kind of this combination of, of, of the soil, the climate, uh, and, and the, the men and women who, who, who are doing the production. And, and then the grape is kind of the, the medium for all those three things that come together to maybe make what terroir is right so especially with older vines and and these these kind of you know these beautiful things where you see people have been making the same wine from the same place for a hundred years from the same vines and it's generational and it's um it's very expressive of a, a time a place a, a people uh, a grape you know all these things uh, i like that kind of expression and so this is this is a difficult question, I know, but I'll, I'll make it a little more generalized. Do you prefer working with white wines or red wines? For most of my career, I mostly just made Chardonnay. Oh, my okay. wife called me a one-trick pony for a long time. I feel like I think white wines are harder, to, so there's a little more care and, and attention that needs to be paid, I think, when you make white wines. Mm -hmm. Not to say that making red wines is easy, but I feel like when you have a really beautiful expression of white wine it's so precise and so elegant where reds can be kind of even the best ones can be almost overpowering okay. sometimes so the elegance in white wine i think if i had to choose i'd, I'd only be a white wine maker i think that we we've said many times that red wine is more forgiving yeah right if you if you miss something that's going awry in a red wine you ha to me, you have a larger window to fix it yes, than exactly. in a white wine. There's not, you can't really go in reverse with the white wines. Like right. Once things have gone off the, the rails, so to speak, you're kind right. of, you, kind you, of sunk. You're, you're, just, you're just going faster and faster, right? It's Casey's train or whatever, you know, going off the racks, going off the rails. Absolutely. Uh, well, these wines are beautiful, and I love that I got to taste the the you know, the 10 year difference between these wines. I think it, I love clever names and I cracked, you, you gave a little smirk about fanciful because I joke about that all the time. Like that's not, we don't come up with that. That's like a, actually a that's governmental. The, it's the TTB <laughs> dictating. <laughs> they literally call it a fanciful name on the web, on their website. Um, and it's not always easy to come up with those fanciful names, but it's nice, you know, there's a good story. And to they're it. all taken now. Oh, they are. They're, you can't you. You have to really go out on a limb to find something that's not taken these days. Right. And now I'm looking uh, at the label itself. So is that, I mean, that's the ocean, and that's basically the designation of where your vineyard is that this comes from. Yeah, so there's, uh, we have a picture of the coastline on, on our, our main label. We call our classic label here. Um, and there's a, a, a small compass that's part of our branding that um, on each vineyard designate wine that with the, with the classic label here, the they, um, compass will uh, mark the, the, the side of the vineyard. And in some cases, we have uh, uh, wines that come from both Derby 
and Laura's Vineyard. So that'll have two compasses and two vineyard names oh, okay. on it. So um, it, it's just a nice way to geographically locate the wines. And especially with Derbyshire, because it was without an ABA for so long. It was San Luis Obispo County, even though it's a very special okay. place. The, the, the Steve Vieira, our vineyard manager, was a big part of the group that got the uh, San Luis Obispo Coast ABA designated and approved, uh, and that was a big deal. But before that really allowed us to put the Derbyshire wines with this label to say this vineyard is right on the ocean, even though we produce it in Paso. It's, yeah. it's, this vineyard is right on the ocean. And so how long does it take you to if you're harvesting there to process here. Oh, the, the drive. Here. Oh, it's, you know, it's only about in a big truck load of grapes. It's probably 45, 50 minutes. Oh, okay. But, you know, we usually pick early in the morning. Mm-hmm. Steve will start, you know, right before dawn, dawn usually. And, you know, we'll have the grapes here in the morning and Still in tank very by cold. the cold. <laughs> and then, yeah, the grapes never get warm out there. And then they'll be in tank by the early afternoon okay. because the yields are very small out there. It's a 70-acre it's a vineyard, but we only get half a ton an acre. We can oh, wow. so close to the ocean. So picking them actually takes a long time. It's hard for the crew sometimes because it's not just a wall of right grapes it's not eight tons an acre or something like that it's kind of a hunt and peck situation right absolutely and but but i mean there's theories or you know whether what what side of the fence you're on you know low quantity doesn't always equal quality no but but balanced balanced there you go if you're cropping your artificially cropping your vine down to one ton an acre when it really wants to be doing three you're just like first of all you're just throwing money away <laughs> okay. and second you're, you're you're just um kind of steering the wine towards more vegetative Team. growth when it could be using that to um, make better fruit make make more and better, better fruit. fruit absolutely so is there anything that i missed that you think people should know about derby wine estates i think you kind of nailed it yeah. I, I there's nothing dramatic that I can think of. Well, I'm excited. I learned you have a sparkling. Yeah, so right. I'm, you know, <laughs> now I'm really, really, really excited. Uh, and then winemakers don't always know the answer, but how do they find you on social? I don't social media. Um, Is it go on the derby, website, Derby Wine derby Estates. Wine estate. yeah, yeah, <laughs> hashtag Derby Wine Estates. There you go. That works. Yeah. There you go. So, and the wine, the, it is, the website is Derby Wine Estate. DerbyWineEstates.com. We have with a brand new website and all, all the information that you would need to, to connect with us online would be found there. It is right there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking time and uh, sharing all your amazing wine and uh, information about Derby. Thank you, Laura. Awesome. Thanks. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoyt Bus. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com and sign up for my newsletter at exploringthewineglass.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Podcast music is Wine by Kievitz. Until next week, slancha. I'm on Kievitz for my 10,000 hotel, yo. There is always time for a good glass of wine.
right now. 